Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 38 of Yogaland. Today, I talked to yoga teacher Nikki Estrada. Nikki has more than 20 years of teaching experience under her belt, and she was the director of trainer development for YogaWorks for more than seven years. So she's supported and mentored a lot of teacher trainers. In full disclosure, Nikki is honestly, I think my first real yoga teacher. Many years ago, Nikki was teaching at the Yoga Shala in Noe Valley in San Francisco. And I went to her class regularly. I can't believe it now, but I think it was a class that started at 7.30 p.m. (laughs) So I would go to work all day and then I would grab a snack and then I would go to her class and I would get home at nine o'clock and I would feel amazing and I would eat my dinner and it was Monday night and it started off my week really well. Her class was the first class where I ever did forearm balance and I was just completely mind blown by that experience and it was a funny little studio where there was kind of a platform that she stood up on and it was a pretty big space so there were at least 30 to 40 of us in that room And I just remember watching her on the platform and she just has this wonderful way about her where she has a commanding presence and you know that she knows her stuff and she is confident, but she's also incredibly relatable and down to earth. So a lot of you have written in about wanting advice on how to live your yoga from the philosophical standpoint. I've gotten that question a lot. So I thought I would start from the beginning and start with the yamas. And I reached out to Nikki and she was very, very interested in this topic. So we talked today about just the first two yamas, Ahimsa and Satya, and kind of how we incorporate them into our lives, into our parenting. Of course, parenting came up. (laughs) Sorry for those of you who don't have kids, that parenting keeps coming up. Um, It's obviously a pressing, pressing issue for me. We talked about the order and the importance of the order of the yamas, that ahimsa is first and that the others kind of fall in line behind it. And so how to kind of integrate them and balance them. I want to mention that Nikki just launched uh, an online subscription site, so you can practice with her online, and I've tried it out. It's great. And one of the things I love about it is that when you sign up for the subscription, you get, you know, yoga classes with her, and also um, she does cooking and recipes in her kitchen, so there's nutritional support. And then she also has a private Facebook group where she posts videos and keeps in touch about living your yoga. And specifically, right now, she's started with the yamas. So you can practice with her online at NikkiEstradaYoga.com, and I will put a link to that on the show notes page as well. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can leave a review on iTunes, and you can also just share it with your friends and your loved ones. I hope it's helpful to you, and I'll see you on the other side. So last time we spoke, I mentioned that I get a lot of questions from listeners wanting to know how to bring yoga philosophy into their daily lives. For me, that's a huge and ever-evolving question. (laughs) So I thought it would be easiest to start with just the very basics and just start by talking about Patanjali's first two yamas, which are Ahimsa and Satya. 
I want to just mention before the first question that, you know, it's said that the yamas are listed in order of priority. So ahimsa being number one is like the quote unquote most important one. And then on down the line and ahimsa encompasses satya. And so I want to talk about that relationship too. Okay. So let's just start with when you're teaching ahimsa to trainees or in class, how do you help them start to incorporate this principle into practice and into their life? And actually, sorry, I didn't even define ahimsa. So why don't we start there? (laughs) Why don't you start with like your definition? Okay, so, you know, the the typical definition that you hear of ahimsa is nonviolence, or I prefer to think of it as non-harming, because violence can sound so kind of extreme, and non-harming, not not being harmful. So that would be, you know, kind of the, the starting off point of what is ahimsa. And to kind of jump into the question you asked about trainees, Really, it's an interactive discussion because when we think of non-harming or non-violence, it's so easy to think, well, it's just not physically hurting someone. And that's like the most um, kind of rudimentary understanding of the whole thing. But really, really, when we take a look at non-harming, we have to begin to look within our own selves. And the big one, which I think is huge for most people, is starting to uncover the ways in which we might be harmful in our own minds, in our own thoughts. Often they're aimed towards ourselves, you know, the things that we say that aren't so kind towards ourselves that then is like a starting off point for extending that outwards. It it becomes the thought becomes the word becomes the behavior, right? So when it comes to starting to talk about integrating yoga into daily life, and definitely in terms of yoga teacher training, you know, it's really just getting us all to take a deeper look and to start examining our thoughts and what might we be saying about ourselves or to ourselves. And so often it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I was, I just did my yoga practice and in the past year, I've been having really bad hand and wrist pain and I'm not sure what it is. It could just be aging. It could be cancer drugs. It could be a a mix of either of those, Mm -hmm. but it's really different than any other joint pain I've ever had. And yet I'm still having a really hard time giving up arm balances. And (laughs) I was doing this practice today and it's like this nice hip opening practice. And I really wanted to do an arm balance and I did it and I totally created pain in my body. And because I'm about to have, I was about to have this conversation with you. I thought like, this is just the perfect example of Mm -hmm. kind of overriding, um, and being harmful to myself for, to no end, like for no good (laughs) reason. Right. Except there's an instinct to, um, I guess for me in that moment, it was just like an instinct to achieve something or an instinct to like, have an outer experience, an outer recognition of something. So I'm wondering, you know, why do you think it's listed as, you know, the first most important priority, most important principle? Gosh, it's it's a huge question. And I can only imagine, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking Patanjali Yoga Sutras. It's also a part of Hinduism. It's also a part of Tantra Yoga, which expands 
in Hinduism expands from the five to the 10. So it goes even beyond, you know, the five that most of us are familiar with in terms of Patanjali yoga. I do believe there's a reason for the order because if you really think about non-harming and then you move into the other ones like truth and not stealing and not being greedy, et cetera, there's a thread of non-harming in all of those. Right. Really, there's a thread of non-harming. So why is it the first one? I think because it's connected to all of them, really. I mean, if you think about being greedy, well, there's harm in that. It's taking more than you really need in whatever form that appears. It's the basis. Yeah, it's the basis. It's kind of like I'm thinking of also from the sutras that not really knowing who you are at your core is the first of the five kleshas, right? It leads to the other, to ego, to attachment, to all those other things. The fundamental not knowing of who you are leads to the other, you know, four causes of suffering. Mm -hmm. So I think in the same way, ahimsa is threaded through those other four, you know, yamas, really. They're all connected. Yeah. So if we begin with really non-harming, it's going to lead us to those other behaviors as well. Yeah. And, you know, like you were sort of alluding to the fact in the answer to the first question that it's not a black and white principle, that it can be more, more nuanced than that. So can you talk about some examples of how it's, it's not a black and white, just, you know, don't be violent to your neighbor? Right, absolutely. Well, I'll give you an example that's very real life from me recently, and it comes, it relates to parenting. So one of the things I struggle with often particularly with, well, with both of my children, but they're strong. They're very strong and, you know, a lot of will, a lot of intensity. And uh, it's very challenging sometimes because for me and my personality, the truth is I'm pretty relaxed and I'm pretty go with the flow. But as a parent, that doesn't really work. The go with the flow thing does not work. (laughs) You have to be very clear about your boundaries. Firm boundaries all the time. Firm boundaries. You relax for a minute and they read it and bam, they're in there with the negotiating skills, right? So one of the things that, that I find really challenging is when is it appropriate? And sometimes I have found that it is, I need to get very strong. Mm -hmm. And I, it is okay at times to allow some anger to show. And it's always the question for me of when, when is that the right thing? Because sometimes when you're really, really calm and really gentle, they just keep going. They just keep, they, they keep pushing the edge and pushing the edge and and pushing the edge. And, and there was a, a day recently with my older daughter where I was, you know, in, in my online group, we are practicing, we have been practicing for a week, ahimsa, So I was aware that one of my challenges is, and this may seem subtle, but for me, it doesn't feel right. It feels like a form of harming. I get edgy, right? And kids read the edginess in my voice immediately. So I would never do that with a student or I would never do that with a friend. You know, I would, I would contain that edginess and, 
you know, outlet it in some other way. But with kids, they're in your home environment. You're so close. They push you constantly. I get edge in my voice. So my goal in practicing non-harming was to really not do that and really hold my calm and my boundaries and be mindful when I have the, the tendency to go there, to go into that edgy zone, into the edgy zone with my voice and my responses to them. So I had been very mindful all day with my kids and some of the kind of bratty behavior came up with my little one. How old is your little one, by the way? My little one is about to turn seven. Okay. And how old is your older one? She's 11. Okay. So I've got a first grader and a fifth grader, and they're in very different places, obviously, developmentally. But my little one is still in the little zone. I mean, seven is still little. She's in first grade. So she tends to do the kind of the whiny stuff, you know, the, the bratty, whiny thing in the, in the evening. So I had fielded one situation with her. And I was very proud of myself. I did not get edgy because... Aren't you so proud when you stay home? Oh <laughs> All of you parents out there, the whining uh, is enough to make you insane, totally. right? It's so hard to it's stay like calm. Nails on a whining. chalkboard. Ugh. Nails on a chalkboard to your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> the whining and for me, the nagging, the nagging, yeah. nagging, nagging, nagging. Yeah. Same question 85 uh. times. Yeah. So I had fielded one of these with the little one without getting edgy. And I had skillfully helped dissolve it with a little bit of humor and a little bit of compassion. We kind of got out of what could have been literally a, an explosion. But then as the day progressed, and again, it's the evening, I'm giving out lots of energy and lots of kind support in a variety of capacities between my 11-year-old and my 7-year-old. And then I was done. And it was 8.30 at night, and I was really tired. I had had a very busy week of teaching. And I said to my 11-year-old, okay, like it's 8.30, you really, you got to be moving towards bed and I'm totally done. Yeah. And her tactics began. Her tactics began. And I, I, for about five minutes, stayed pretty calm. Like, no, you know, you really, it's bedtime. Mm -hmm. I'm really done. Now you're starting to go there and I have been helpful with you. I even navigated a few projects I wasn't planning on helping you with. I feel really good about my part. Now I've got to take care of myself. And that was not respected, mm. not in the least. And I honestly came unglued. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do or say anything to her that I regretted, but I was clearly angry, yeah. really angry. And so then, you know, we, we grapple with, was that right or not? And the truth is... To me in that moment, in hindsight, she needed to see that. So was, was it a little harmful for me to get so angry? Well, you could say yes, like that is, you know, potentially a negative emotion, right? right? But she also needs to see that I'm a human being and I have limits. And when I say, okay, really, no. Like she crossed a boundary. She crossed a well-established, repeated boundary that yes. she knew about. Yes, exactly. And in that moment, the greater the greater ahimsa is. She needs to learn a lesson around this is not okay. You have you have been lovingly taken care of. Now I must take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And you know the the bit of sting from seeing me get so angry. 
I think was justified. I think it was a lesson she needed to learn. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because then you kind of incorporated the, the ahimsa, right? Like you didn't stifle your true feelings about the situation. You were truthful about the situation. Right. And, and just to follow through on that. So I had my husband handle it because I was really furious. Like I just was just so upset. Also, I was, I was tapped out. I was you were low tired. on energy. And yeah. I was tired. And so I just, I had to, to go off and, and feel that for, for a bit. So I did not say goodnight to her. And I was okay with that. Felt like the right thing. I felt like if I went back in, I'd get sucked back into the drama and I had to, to, to sever that. So the next day, I still was upset. And it wasn't done for me. So mornings are tough. I did not bring it up in the morning, you know, as we're trying to get ready for school. I waited. I waited and I was skillful when I brought it up. We were in the car. It was comfortable. It was calm. And I made sure at that point that my energy was calm and I did not attack. I said, I really want to talk about what happened last night. And there was immediately quite a bit of defensiveness. And I don't want to go there. And I said, well, I need to tell you how I feel. Yeah. And so I waited for the green light. And when I got it, I said, you know, this is how I feel. And it really was upsetting. And it felt disrespectful. And I feel like you owe me an apology. So I was truthful without attacking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I didn't come at it with guns blazing. And I got it. Yeah. You know, she said, I'm really sorry. And you are right. And, and she was able to reflect on her behavior from the night before. Mm -hmm. That's very, very valuable. Very valuable. Now, you know, this is an 11 year old too. It depends where you're at in your parenting, right? But they know, they know from a pretty young age. I mean, Sophia's only four, so she'll forget. And so we don't, like you said, that wouldn't be developmentally appropriate for her age, but, right. but they do know what when there's a clear boundary or a routine thing that they transgress, they, they always know they're doing it. Like you said, yeah. they're, just, they're just really testing. I feel like so much of her job as a child is to literally walk around through life, testing every boundary, just almost experimentally, like to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I think like there's, there's one key thing that, that came through in what you said, which is, it, it just reminds me of, one of Brene Brown's, I think it's like one of her TED Talks, where she talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And she says, you know, guilt is actually an acceptable emotion because it keeps us from not being sociopaths. It keeps us, you know, <laughs> it, it truly does. If someone has no guilt in life at all, they tend to literally go into the sociopathic zone. But shame is a completely different issue. Right. Right. And you didn't like you didn't shame her in either situation. Um, no. and, uh, I think that would be crossing into like the more sort of harming lasting, right. You know, harming lasting situation. I, I really struggle with this question that you're, you're talking about, which is how firm to be. And does it cross the line to me feeling mean? And yeah. it's, you know, I'm really, it's, it's such an experiment. I, I find that she listens more to Jason. And part of it is that it's the mom dad thing. There's just oh, a yeah. difference with mom. Oh, yeah. But he is also, he has such better boundaries than me generally in mm -hmm. life, in relationships with her. And so he has much better boundaries 
ahead of time, which to me might feel a little harsh, Mm -hmm. but then he doesn't like explode. (laughs) Right. Whereas I'm, I really struggle with, with staying ahead of her and staying on top of the boundaries and being clear all the time, being clear all the time, being clear. And then I feel like I'm backed against a wall and then I am too mean and harmful. So it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, that is such a question for me of which, how to bring that into my life. Looking again at this concept of harming, like, is it more harmful for me to not have great boundaries, feel backed against the wall and then overreact? Or is it more harmful for me to feel like maybe I'm being a little mean or I'm being a little harsh, but I'm being clear? Well, two things I would say that I've figured out so far which did not come natural to me. I'm more in, on your side of things, like the go with the flow. And then again, you, you've said no, but maybe you haven't said no very clearly. Yeah. And then, you know, again, you kind of explode because you're frustrated that you haven't been heard. Two things, no and consequences. I have found, and in fact, even coming home from a parent meeting the other night, I haven't read it yet, but there was an article given to us on no. The more I say no, the better. Hmm, that's so The more I say no, the better. All of the last minute, can I have this? Can I do that? Can we do that? No. The answer is no. I mean, and it's a little bit goes against probably our nature as women to some degree. And this is true I found in my personal life. The more I generally say no and have time to have a clear reflection about really, is this something I do want to do? Then I need to make space and plan it ahead, the better. And with children, the more you say, nope, this is how it's going to go. Nope, this is how it's going to go. It seems harsh, but it is better. So when there is a yes, it's a really appreciated yes. And when there is a yes, it's because we've kind of planned it or we've We've agreed that this is a good choice to make ahead of time. Mm. Not just that I've been asked every single day after school, can we go get frozen yogurt? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Most of the time, the answer is no. Yeah. Right? So that's a big one, I think. Um, And then consequences. That there are natural consequences for the choices that we make. And this is very yogic. There are natural consequences consequences for the choices that we make and allowing myself to follow through on those consequences has been a challenge and is very important. Very important. And it goes back to the boundary stuff. And it may seem harsh and it may almost seem harmful. But if we rid our children or ourselves of the experience of consequences kind of your comment about Brene Brown and becoming a sociopath, then we just think we're supposed to get everything we want in life all the time. Yeah. And there has to be consequences for behaviors or choices that aren't healthy. Yeah. I think that sometimes uh, for me, the constantly saying no and enforcing the consequences, like I realize I'm a fairly conflict averse person in Mm -hmm. my life which doesn't always serve me. I'm not saying that's a great thing, right? Because it's there's times when you, you know I've turned away from difficulty or turned away from a friend because of a conflict or whatever and it's the work something I work on, but 
you know, it's like, for me, that saying no feels like a conflict, but it's, it's not, it's just parenting. It's such a, Mm -hmm. it's such a huge wake up call. I don't know if anyone else out there feels that way, but. Well, and along those lines, one of the things I've worked with lately in life, and this kind of goes around into the second realm of truth, satya, and I think this is big for women, no, without a huge explanation why. Just, no, I can't do that today. Or, no, that's not on the schedule for today. And I'm not even talking with children, but with requests from other people, because how many times in life are people asking us for things and we have to, and this kind of comes into brahmacharya in a way, conserve our energy. Mm. We cannot say yes to everything. So no, and without feeling like we need to justify the no is really powerful. Yeah. It makes me think of how we over explain, you know, there's a tendency to over explain to appease someone else because saying no can feel too strong, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sure not everyone, every woman experiences this, but from time to time, this might be something that you experience is just like saying no and just leaving it at that can feel a little too like scary in some yeah. way. So you feel this need to um, over explain yourself when really you can just be truthful and just leave it at that and stand in that. I think that's one of the realms, I think, of being truthful is the editing portion, reflecting on, okay, I want to be honest, but I also don't want to be hurtful. And sometimes I don't need to over explain the why of something, Mm -hmm. but just simplify, edit, edit down to really what's needed, you know, what somebody might need to know in any given situation without that huge kind of, you know, I don't know, justification for our no or, or whatever it might be or our truth. Right, right. So one thing that's talked about a lot when you talk about ahimsa and satya is since ahimsa comes first, if you have a truth that might be hurtful to someone, do you express that truth or do you soften it and not be hurtful? I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about without a concrete example, but I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Uh, it's, it's so hard. And again, it harks back to the nothing's black and white. And it's this continual process, I think, of individual and personal and present time reflection on, on the situation. I mean, there's the classic example of, you know, you're out and about, out in the world, and you see your best friend's husband with another woman. Mm. What do you do? You know, what do you do? You've seen something. He leans over and kisses her and it's very clear something's Something's going going on on. there. What do you do? Do, What is least harmful? Is it to not say anything at all and allow their, their own relationship to unfold as it's supposed to? Is it more harmful as a friend that you didn't tell your best friend what you saw? I mean, 
you see it's not black and white and it would involve like really knowing your friend and what would she want you to do? What would you want? Mm -hmm. What would you want? It comes, some of it comes down to intention. What would you want if you were in that situation reversed? Would you want the friend to come and tell you the truth, even though it would be incredibly hurtful to hear? Mm-hmm. You know, do you go to the husband and, and and broach the conversation with him? This is what I've seen. I'm now in a terrible position. You know, either you go tell her or I will. You know, there's many, many choices. And it's not always a matter of black and white in terms of what is the the right answer? And this is where we must use our yoga practices for self-reflection. Yeah. You know, what is my motive here? What is my intent here? What feels like truly the the best and highest choice? Yeah, it seems like what you're saying is so much of trying to incorporate these principles into your life. It's clearly not dogmatic. It's just about engaging in the process. Absolutely. We, I think so much of the time we want something to be black and white. We want to say good, bad, right, and wrong. Here's the process. We want to have the answers. And the truth is if you've lived a little and you've been through some life challenges, most things aren't black and white. And it is a, a process of asking the questions and, um, doing your best to, to live your highest truth, right? With the least amount of harming. And yeah, it's, we, we, we want the answer and it, it's not something really yoga would say. It's not something someone else can give you. It's your own path. It's your own process. You know, that, that example that you gave another example that comes up for me is, um, when someone has a medical diagnosis and I found it really easy to learn through my own process of having a medical diagnosis that I think today's sort of, if you have a modern, thoughtful doctor, they won't really go through your exact prognosis unless you want them to. It's, mm. it's sort of, I notice this, like it's sort of their job to assess where the person is, what they're asking, what they want to know. And they'll tell you according to what you want to know. I know, I just, I know this because of just other people I know who've gone through things who haven't asked at all. And so when I ask them like, okay, how are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about that? Oh, I don't know. I'll just keep going in for my scans and that's that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Actually. I think that's really respectful of each individual person because we just all cope with things so differently. Some of us like to collect every single little tiny bit of data and that that's me. <laughs> and that makes us feel more in control. And mm-hmm. others want to just say, Hey, I'm alive right now. I'm living today. Who knows what's going to happen? I want to just feel good about that. You know? Right. Well, that was my mom had stage four colon cancer. And so I went through that whole process with her and she was very clear from the beginning. I don't want to know anything like that. And the doctors didn't say, but as things progressed along, I needed to know that. Yeah. I needed to know like the inside scoop. What am I looking at here? Because I'm, I'm the primary person, you know, supporting her. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's certainly from the medical perspective, there's that reading of, of people in a situation and how much do I give based upon this human in front of me and what I'm receiving from them. And, and I would say that's like a yogic practice because that's what hopefully we're doing as we move about our daily life out in the world. Mm -hmm. What is, am I reading the situation with as much clarity as possible? And responding lovingly and compassionately and in present time, Mm -hmm. you know, editing, editing my truth based upon who's in front of me, right? Doesn't mean I have to not, not tell the truth, but there's a degree of what is appropriate to share and what, what isn't right. I love the word appropriate. I use that a lot with my daughter. (laughs) You know, it's like, what's appropriate right now? Let's talk about it. Yeah, because what might have been appropriate a year ago as my truth may not be right now. Right. Or who who am I speaking with or who am I interacting with? I think it's about discerning, you know? We have to be discerning of ourselves and then discerning of... I was giving an example um, in terms of Satya on my website, on my online programming about my personal challenge around truth. And I had this interaction a few months ago with a friend where I walked away like oh she she made a comment to me and it stung and like I watched it and I watched how my feelings came up and whoa that didn't feel right at all and I went home and I, I allowed myself to just sit with that kind of trigger like feeling of being really hurt all afternoon and I thought okay what do I want to do with this in the past shove it under the rug. I cuz kind of conflict avoidant. Do I go to her and say, "Wow, that like really hurt my feelings." And then it kind of brings in this big heavy load of she's hurt me and kind of a lot of drama. And I sat with it and I thought, "I can't let it go untouched. I do need to broach the conversation." But I also don't want to take it to a place of victimhood and a lot of drama. I want to see what this was about. And I knew I needed to do it under right timing, you know, not in front of other people and that kind of a thing. So I just said, you're going to be patient and you're going to not be afraid to have the conversation. You're going to have it and you're going to be skillful about it. So sure enough, within a day or two, the time revealed itself that I could I could ask. So instead of going in and saying, oh my God, you said this and it really hurt my feelings and what did you mean? You know, I just said, oh, you know, you said this yesterday and I was wondering what you meant by that. So there wasn't any charge around it or intensity around it, but I gave her a chance to, to speak to why she said that. Yeah. And without any hesitation, she immediately launched into, you know, this whole thing about herself and her own uncomfortableness in relation to something. And in that moment, it was like a light bulb went off. Oh, she didn't say that as a dig at me. Mm. It was about her and her own uncomfortableness with something. But it tapped something in me, and I thought it was about me. And it was so clear in that moment that it wasn't that I didn't need to go into a whole thing about how it hurt my feelings and I thought this and that. I got it. Mm. And I walked away feeling very happy that I had um, addressed it without making it very loaded and, and dramatic. And I was able to hear the truth of the situation, which was it had nothing to do with me. 
Yeah, which people we always say that to each other. Like if you had gone to a friend and described that situation, your friend would have said, Oh, I bet it wasn't about you. It was probably about, about her, but it probably felt much better to just hear it from her than to mm-hmm. wonder and like perseverate on the, on the issue. Yeah. Right. Getting into Satya, we're sort of like, we're coming up on our time here and I, I, I want to get to Satya as well. One of the things you have these great videos, if you sign up for your new online program, which I'll talk about more in the introduction to the podcast, but what I just watched your video about Satya and I liked what you said about, you know, I think it was a, probably a pattern in your um, family of origin. Oh yes. That being honest was, was difficult sometimes. Like you didn't want to offend each other. You didn't want to hurt each other's feelings. So it was sort of okay to tell white lies. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I just was going to say that, um, you know, I, as I mentioned, my mom had stage four cancer and within six months of the diagnosis, she passed away. And yeah, it was a really, I'm an only child and it was a really tough time. I found out just after the diagnosis that I was pregnant with my second child. So it was just like the most challenging time. Yeah. And to the best of my ability, I I tried to have my eyes wide open through the whole process on myself, on her, on what she was going through, on the medical industry, on hospice, on dying. I mean, it was just, I mean, it's hard enough, but I, I really tried to be as awake as I could be through the whole process. And then within about a couple of years of her passing, my dad died as well. Oh, Nikki. Yeah. And, you know, young, like my mom was 60 and my father, he was older than her, maybe was 65 or something when he passed, something in that realm. Young, right? Young. And one of the things that came out of, especially my mom passing, because, you know, your mom is, you know, there's no one you're, you're closer to than your mom, but also my dad passing was this really, really deep commitment to not repeating some of the the not so healthy family patterns. Really, like having my eyes wide open going forward from from what I learned in that process of losing my mom. And one of them was being honest, like really Mm. honest, because there was this pattern of if for some reason you didn't feel like you could be honest, it was either avoidance or you know, it was okay to kind of, you know, tell that white lie because you couldn't really just own your own truth. Mm-hmm, wasn't mm-hmm. okay to own your own truth. Kind of going back to what we were talking about in terms of just saying no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one that's kind of been up for me for ever really ever since the passing of my mom is like anytime I feel like I can't tell the truth, I go, well, why? Mm-hmm. Why? Like, why can't I tell the truth? And and what I was saying in that video was, it's a bit of a discerning. Is it is it that I think you don't want to hear the truth? Because there's those people that have communicated, sometimes non-verbally, that they do not want to go there with you. And then sometimes it's within yourself. It's something with, you know, you don't feel that you can be honest for your own, your own personal reasons. So whenever I find myself feeling that, 
I feel like it's a huge tool. Why don't I feel like I can be honest Mm -hmm. and have that conversation with myself and then make the decision? Well, is, is it right that this is something that needs to be said, even if the other person doesn't like it? Or is this something, you know, that I must edit or... And also, what comes to mind for me is, if I recognize that I'm dealing with someone who doesn't necessarily love to to hear the truth, or doesn't love to be communicated with in a straightforward way, like for me, the next step is always, can I handle their reaction? You know, can I just say to myself, it's okay, they're allowed to have their response. They're allowed, they're allowed to have their feelings about it. It's still important that I be truthful and that I be honest. Yes, that's you really hit the nail on the head because yeah, that that's the thing is like if if I'm going to go there mm-hmm. and I'm going to say that thing even as kindly as I can, if I think it's going to piss them off and they are going to shut me out, can I deal with that? Yeah. Or maybe they're going to come back with accusation, you know, like, well, you're this or you did that, then can I handle, can I handle some truth coming my way too? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's a lifelong practice. Lifelong, lifelong. And fascinating. Yeah. I mean, learning about ourselves, right? Learning about ourselves and how we, and, and how we can improve our relationships. That's what it's about for me. Absolutely. Yeah. How can we have more honest and real and loving and um, respectful relationships? Yeah. It's a good place to start. I want to know that the people that are, that, that are really close to me can be honest with me and that I'm going to work on kind, compassionate honesty with them. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you so much, Nikki. Yes. Thank you for having me, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening, everyone. I feel like this topic, specifically Ahimsa and Satya, is something we can nerd out about forever (laughs) and parse a million different ways. And so I actually have another podcast where we will start with Ahimsa planned with Kate Holcomb. So there's more to come on this topic. I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear how it resonates with you. And you can find show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 38. Take care, everyone. Until next week, enjoy your practice.